0: You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. As we continue uh, to take a look at not only the gospel, but also our responsibility to it. And I believe there are times, I think sometimes it, it, it has an impact on us and even plants doubts about what we believe. some point, Cameron, who I know, if you're avid movie goers, there's several of his movies you've probably watched, but he teamed up with another gentleman who, who was supposed to be an archaeologist who had uncovered some things in Jerusalem, and the, now, now, the title of the uh, documentary was Jesus' Family Tomb. And the little tagline under it said it was a two-hour documentary. And I can remember when it, was, when it was shown because the church I was serving at the time, I was a student pastor at the time, and I had several teenagers who watched it and several teenagers that were really struggling with what was presented. And it was basically by a lot of Christians, or at least by this documentary, and what the Bible has to say, trying to reconcile the two or bring the two together. The, the documentary was built off of something that actually happened in 1980, which kind of begs the question why so many years had passed and we not heard anything about construction, they uncovered a, a tomb, a family tomb. And when they uncovered this tomb, they went in and they found that there were boxes of bones inside of this family tomb. Now, that's not unusual. As a matter of fact, in many, many, many years of Jewish cult tomb, they would actually open the tomb, go in and get your bones, put your bones in a very ornate stone box, and they would inscribe your name on the outside of the box. These boxes were called ossuaries. And they're all over the place in Jerusalem, and it was very well known that these boxes were used on a regular basis. So when they're doing this construction project, they ended up opening up a tomb by mistake, they didn't know it was there. They did some work on this. When he began to study the bone boxes that were taken out of the tomb, he found something very interesting. He found that on one Judas, and there was another one inscribed Miriam or Marian, or actually could be translated Mary. Jesus, some of his immediate earthly family, and at least one or maybe two of his disciples, they made the conclusion that based off the assumption. Now, is that some history or is that a discovery that would change the world? Well, of course it would. And Paul's going to say that in chapter 50, event on discovery. There's a lot of things you weren't told. For example, in Jesus' day and in the history of of, the Judaism and the history of the Jews, these names, especially in Jesus' day, were used very frequently into the time of all names given to children during that time. You also weren't told that almost every archaeologist... That were false. And these were archaeologists who, who were not Christians, who were absolute, some of them were absolute atheists, but when they looked at the evidence that was being presented in the documentary, they said this is absolutely false. You never heard about that. You never heard that all these years had changed the world when they released their findings. No, what you have here is a couple of individuals, including James Cameron, by the way, who is not a believer undermining the testimony of Jesus Christ. It was a hit piece is what it was. And, and, and during that time that it was presented both on the Discovery Channel and then later on in the History Channel, it was meant as something that would completely undermine the Christian faith and yes, plant doubt in those people who've put their faith in Jesus. Now, I was asked, it's been several years ago, on and serve in a, in a business school. That was his goal. And he asked me a, a point blank question and, and I'd never been asked this before. He said, What would it take for you to not follow Jesus? In other words, you, you, you say you follow Jesus that would cause you to say and throw your hands up and say, I'm no longer following Jesus. Would there be something? And at the time I didn't know how to answer him. But after he asked the question, I dug in the scripture and I did find out what the one thing is that would really cause me some all kinds of, of excuses on why not to follow Jesus some of them have to do with the facts of the gospel, but a lot of them have to do with, well, um, I, I I just don't trust the church. I went to church when I was a kid, and I got hurt, or my family, I've hurt them all. I've even heard from some people who started following Jesus, maybe was even baptized, only later to walk away from the faith, and the reason they walked away from the faith is because they found out that following Jesus was just too hard. In fact, Jesus would say, you need to count the cost before you follow me. And there were some that I've met down through the years who said, you know, I thought it was going to be easy. I thought it was going to be just a a kind of a road paved with flowers and roses and my life was going to be perfect, only to find out that on the backside of following Jesus, it was much harder than I thought, and I walked away. When you begin to share the gospel with people, when you you begin to talk about why you have hope and understand that aspect of the gospel, they're going to understand that the world is absolutely broken and fallen. And honestly, I believe this is one of the best places. Somebody that I know is going through some kind of hardship that's directly a result of the fall. They just maybe don't understand it. But when you begin to talk about Jesus and you begin to talk about your faith in him, And you begin to talk about how it changed your life. And then you look at that person, eyeball to eyeball, and you say this statement to them. What's preventing you? After I've already showed you that the world is broken, but there's a way way to live in such a way that honors God, restores you on the inside out, and gives you purpose and meaning in life. If I've explained all that, and Jesus Christ is that answer, what's preventing you from repenting and believing? Now in that moment, I have learned this this little tidbit. When you present the Holy Spirit in that moment, work in that person's life. There's nothing else for you to say. You've already presented the gospel. You've talked about a fallen world. You've talked about the changes made in your life. And then I want you to just stop. Because you're going to see something amazing in that moment. In that awkward silence, when you stop talking and you've kind of put it out there for them to respond what you're going to hear is, well, taxes are "Oh, I know about this person. And all of a sudden, every kind of excuse comes out in the world. And I'll tell you what's happening in that moment. They're feeling the weight of their own sin. I would offer to you that in that moment, the Holy Spirit may very well be drawing that person to the cross. And that's when we need to stop and let them feel the weight of that. Now, in this moment between lostness, and coming to faith in Christ, you may get some questions that you're going to need to deal with. Listen to me. You cannot coast on the coattails of your parents or grandparents or simply the sermons that you have to endure here every Sunday. You've got to do more than that you got to know why you believe. you got to know why. What is it that would make you walk away from the faith? Know the answer to that question. Because it very well may come up right here. They may look at you and go, why in the world would you spend your whole life following Jesus when it's a whole lot easier just to live like the world? That's a good question. How would you answer that? you got to know what you believe. And every single poll that I've read seems to indicate that American churches in law preaching and all the curriculum and all the Bible translations and all the podcasts and, and, and all of the online stuff and all the stuff on TV, it's amazing. It seems like we're stepping back in our understanding of what the gospel is and what the Bible has to say. So I promise you, for the hope that is within you, you don't need a theology degree. You don't need to go off to seminary. You simply need to understand the core of the Christian faith. The core of the Christian faith is not church membership. The core of the Christian faith is not giving money to the local church. The core of the Christian faith is not a church building. The core of the Christian faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unadulterated, unchanged, not watered down, simply that Jesus came, He lived, He died, He was buried, He was resurrected. Now what are you going to do with that? Paul is going to draw our attention to the implications of the one thing, that the Christian faith hinges upon. If you look at the doors around this room, every one of these doors have hinges. And in those hinges are pins. And if those pins aren't there in those hinges, you don't have a door. You've got a piece of wood or a piece of metal leaned up against the hinge of your entire Christian faith. Everything is contingent upon this. And we've got to understand it. And not only that, we've got to defend it. And we've got to explain it. And we've got to stand upon it. Because if you're standing on anything else, you're standing upon sand, not upon rock. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says, to the church at Corinth, they started it and planted it upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been proclaimed to you. I've modeled it. I've taught it. You received it. You were baptized. But now I'm beginning to hear reports that there is major division within your church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you don't have to turn it over there. This is what he does. Paul says, let me point out the problem in the church at Corinth that everything else is kind of connected to. He says that when I came to you, I preached the gospel. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to stay with you. Paul was not going to be the pastor of the church at Corinth. He knew he was going to move on and continue to plant churches. So he was going to establish the structure. He was going to preach the gospel. He was going to give them a good start. And then he was going to move on. Faith in Christ, it was like you were newborn children. You know, you you didn't know everything that happened. You just knew that there had been a change in your life. And he said, you guys were like newborns. He says, so I started where you were. I I started feeding you with the milk of the Word. Paul's life. Paul disappeared into the Arabian Desert for a couple of years, and he went into the Old Testament. He began to try to understand how he missed Jesus. At Corinth, he started with milk. He started with a baby bottle with a nipple on it. He says, but that milk that I fed you was to move you on to maybe some Gerber's baby food. That was the next step. Maybe get a little deeper, get some green beans in you, right? Some peas. It's kind of still mushed up, not the best in the world. I remember opening that stuff when my children were small, I'm like, I can't. eventually, we move to some solid food. We get deeper into Scripture. We get deeper into who Jesus is. With the idea that at some point, you're going to be able to carve into some prime rib. You're going to be eating some meat. So we're going to move from a bottle... To a big old stake to mature and to grow. But you know what he found? They were still in the nursery. They still had a bottle of milk in their mouth. And then, mature in your faith, you are prime. You are ready for a false teacher to walk into your life and completely mislead you. And they are there's plenty of them. Of a Methodist church. And what he wrote and what he said about the Bible stunned me. There are plenty of false teachers to be because you're being misled. And in chapter 15, Paul's going to answer for us what the core is. He's going to answer. Do not debate this. We do not, we don't, we, we are not going to sit down with any single person from a cult or any other religion in the world, and we are going to relate what would cause you to walk away. Paul is going to identify it right here. Look at verse 12. He says, Now, if Christ is per false teachers that had kind of arisen in the church at Corinth, there, there was a doctrine that they were teaching. Not only were they teaching a doctrine, but they were undermining. Believers. We're in this church actively teaching something that was in complete opposition to what Paul left in their hands. And this is what they were teaching. Now, of an afterlife. The Jewish people believed that. But, but they believed, and some of, some of them were different in how they approached this, but as a ghost, for you to bodily resurrect, in other words, you would not have a body. This is what they were teaching. Now, Paul says, you believe, you act on. Whatever you accept as truth, that's how you live your life. So listen, belief in truth doesn't just have some kind of side effect. It actually dictates who you are and what you do and the choices that you make every single day. And some of you proclaim that there's no way for a bodily resurrection. Verse 13, Paul is going to give us the implications of believing that lie. Now you're here this morning, you may be, you may have bought into the idea that Jesus, when he resurrected, your belief in that is that he just turned into a ghost, his body's still in the tomb somewhere. That may have been what you were taught. But I want you to understand the implications of believing a lie. Paul says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, no bodily resurrection of the dead, then let's get right to the point, then not even Christ has been resurrected. So, Corinthian church, if you want to take this position, you've got to understand what the implications of that position is. And it goes completely in opposition to what I told you. Now, remember, Paul is an eyewitness on the road alive, With a body, great light, great power, great presence, so much so that Paul buries his face in the dirt. So Paul is a witness to a resurrected Lord. So he goes on. He says, so then if Christ has not been raised, look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You could take that word vain. The Holy Spirit failed just as Jesus predicted that it would. From that moment on, we've had something on the globe called the New Testament church. And all down through the ages and corridors of high, over 2,000 years now, there have been people just like me all over the globe preaching the gospel. There have been people who have gone in the nations, gone into missions, gone all over the world with the same message, and that is the message of Jesus Christ and that the gospel will transform you. We've been all over the world. There are still portions of the world that have never heard, and there are still people going and sharing the gospel. And I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that if Jesus did not bodily resurrect, then every sermon that has ever been Proclaim, every time the gospel has ever been shared has been a complete farce and a complete lie. That missions is a joke. is a waste of time. All the time that all of those expositional preachers have said, tearing in the God's Word, was based on the premise that Jesus Christ... I'll probably regret that. Uh, I'm not here because you pay me. I'm here because there's a resurrected Lord. But Paul says all of that all of that is useless. And your faith is useless. He says that faith is useless. Faith is in vain. In other words, it's a waste of time. You see, fable facts. Something that corresponds to reality. So when, when Jesus is said to have hung on a cross, lived upon this earth, and yes, he did in fact die on a cross. And they're atheists. There's all kinds of historical... says if your faith goes any more than that, then it's useless. Then he says, verse 15, he says, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. And if, if it is true that the dead are not raised, Paul takes it another step. He says, Not only has all the preaching been in vain, but my preaching has been in vain. All of His church planning. church is not a church at all. It's just a gathering of people who get to hear speeches every week. every invitation, Ever proclamation, ever sharing of one on one, was a misrepresentation of God Himself. Now, get this: the people in the church at Corinth, even these false teachers, believed in God. They were, they were, they were theists. In other words, they believed that God existed. So when Paul looks at them and writes to them and says to them, "Listen." You are misrepresenting God. That is a heavy charge. That every time we talk about Jesus as Jesus is God in the flesh, the Godhead Trinity itself, whenever we bring that up, we are misrepresenting God and we are nothing but a bunch of liars. Paul says that the apostles themselves are misrepresenting God. The apostles themselves... As they would go forth from the New Testament church all over the place to proclaim the gospel. They were all a bunch of fakes. Praise, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. You need to underline that part right there. If you write in your Bible, underline that part where it says, you are still in your sins. Here is where it gets down to where the rubber meets the road. If Jesus did not walk out of that tomb alive, then his sacrifice on that cross was nothing more than a good man who got caught up in a bad system. In other words, if Jesus didn't walk out of the tomb alive, then the world is wrong. You know, you going after the broken hearted and people who are who are caught up in all kinds of things in the world. And you know, if you want to follow Jesus, that's great. But look, I, hanging on a cross, who was a pretty good guy, but nothing more than that. So the blood that he shed. Was just the blood of a martyr, another human being, a long line of people who stood for something and were hated for it. And here's the point you, my friends, including myself, are still under the wrath of a holy God. You've never been reconciled, you're still dead in your sins. All we've got left is maybe a works-based kind of thing to where maybe we can do enough good things, just like Islam and just like Jehovah's Witnesses. Enough, come on in. That's what's left, folks. Without a bodily resurrection, you are dead in your sins. You've never crossed from death and the life. You've never come out of darkness. And you, in fact, have no hope. Paul says to the church at Corinth, listen, if you go down that path, there's implications, and you need to understand what they are. He says, if, you've not, if he's not been raised, your faith is futile. In other words, it's weak, it's useless, and you're still in your sins. Look at verse 18. Then those who also have fallen asleep, in other words, died, that's how Paul uses that term, those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ have perished. I've done a lot of funerals down through the years. Probably a lot for the amount of years I've been in ministry. And during that moment, when a loved one passes away, there's all kinds of chaos that comes into a family. It doesn't matter the circumstances. And during those moments of a person who maybe had a long illness or maybe it was an accident it was completely unexpected or someone died with a condition you didn't even know about, it doesn't matter. When that happens, all kinds of things begin to happen. And for that immediate family, they don't even have time to grieve most of the time in the early stages of grief and the next thing you know, there are people coming by. Thank God for them, and they're bringing food. And then you got then you got to plan a funeral, and you got to get all those arrangements. So for really for two weeks there, you're you're just kind of caught up in a in a system that where you don't even have time to even think. i I'll, I'll tell you when it all hits. I've seen it over and over and over again. Some families when we're doing the funeral, the memorial service, they hold it together. You can watch the family, and they're trying to hold it together. But right in front of me is a casket or even an urn with ashes in it. And the reality, I'm I'm talking about, folks, the cold, stark reality of life and death is never more profound than in that moment. That's why we always talk about Jesus. That's why we always bring the gospel up in that moment. Because everyone sitting in that room is confronted with their own reality. And that is that one day they're going to face the same thing. And that's hard, folks. You know what it is. You've been through it multiple times in the waves of stuff that overcome you at that moment for the spouse or for the kids or for the brothers and sisters. But then we make our way to the graveside. The grief come out. And it's at that graveside where I stand in front of that family, in front of all their friends, and I try my very best in that moment to say to them, listen, listen. What you see here is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of a grand and beautiful story that this person, this is what I want on my tombstone. Make a note here, folks. When I kick the bucket, when I die, I want on my tombstone these very words. He has just begun to live. That's what I want right there. And when I look at the family, I look at them and I go, there is hope. And I may use some passages. I may use Psalm 23. I may use uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talking about that day when we'll be bodily resurrected. I don't know what I'll use, but I'll use something. First Corinthians 15, the latter part of this chapter. I'll use it. You know why I'm doing that? Because I want to direct their attention to the reality of an empty tomb. But folks, if that tomb did not empty, then that is all a bunch of fake garbage. I want you to feel the weight of this. That every funeral you've ever been to for a believer, that grave is in fact the very end for that person if Jesus did not bodily resurrect. That's how serious this is. That's why it's the very core of the Christian faith. That's why it's the pin of the hinge of the door of Christianity. Everything is contingent upon this. And Paul says that if you're going to believe this foolishness, you've got to understand where that takes you. It takes you to hopelessness. It takes you to despair, and it takes you the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, Paul eases up in verse twenty. Knows what verse twenty is that? But in fact, now when Paul says that, what is he saying? He's saying that there is objective truth that corresponds to reality that something happened in Jerusalem at that empty tomb. Paul says, out of, the, out of the experience that he had on the Damascus Road, but even beyond that, as to what the Scripture actually has to say in the Old Testament about this man named Jesus, that something happened. Paul says, but in fact, something that corresponds to reality. Lost person, you got far too much to lose to just discount the resurrection. Lost person, you got way too much to lose here. As a matter of fact, can I offer to you that if you don't believe, if that's the one thing that's keeping you from crossing the death and the life, you've got a whole lot more to lose than I do. Hear me out. If by some happenstance, Jesus didn't resurrect, and I've tried to live my life for it's all a joke, and if even if it was all fake, I, I think hopefully that I've made some impact in some people's lives to help them live a better life, something that meant something. Even if it's all fake, I drive my best. I die, and I go into a grave, and that's the end. But listen, folks. Listen, lost person. If the resurrection is true, and you walk by that, and you reject that, totally different outcome for you. Eternal punishment will be your home. Because I believe I'm standing on this stage right now. So you've got much more to lose if you walk by a bodily resurrection, and you reject it because, listen, how foolish would it be to reject the greatest event in human history because somebody hurt your feelings 25 years ago at a Baptist church? How foolish it would be. That because some pastor in your past failed and hurt your feelings or hurt your family's feelings or stole some money from a church, how foolish it would be to walk by the greatest event in human history that will change your life and give you finally what you've been looking for your entire life and haven't been able to find. Would not it be foolish to just walk right by that because of some idiot in your past that got it wrong? You see, you're going to be held accountable for the choices you make, not the choice that pastor made. Or that church made, or that deacon made, or that Sunday school teacher made, or that VBS director made. No, you're going to be held accountable because the truth has been given to you. It's what you do with that truth that's going to change your reality. If he is alive, then Jesus is superior to every other teacher, he's superior to every other religious founder. Other false prophets you want to bring up, I will show you over and over again that Jesus is far greater. Why? Because he beat the one thing that none of those people did, death itself. Notice what Paul says in chapter 15, verse 1. Now we're going to back up. People who've come to faith in Christ responded by faith. They were baptized at this local church in Corinth by which you are being saved. Notice that. We talked about this, but it's worth bringing up again. When you came to faith in Christ, you were saved. You were justified. In other words... God's grace and God's mercy, the gospel of Jesus Christ is still working in you. Not to, that you then, listen, are the incarnation of Christ. What does that mean? You are Jesus with flesh on as you go back out and serve the world. You're to continue the ministry that he began. Paul says all that was proclaimed to you. And he said, and you hold faithful in brothers that were in fact not Brothers. That they believed in vain. They believed in the gospel for the wrong reasons. They, they believed in Jesus because they thought they would want to repent. They wanted to hold on to the world and try to hold on to Jesus. And that was what happened in that moment. And Paul says, if that's what you did, then you're not really a brother. Your belief is in vain. First importance. Paul When Paul goes to the church at Corinth and he established the church, and then when he writes this letter in response to what he hears is going on there, he says, let me bring your attention back to what is most important. What is most important is not handing out food. What is most important is not having a building. What is full of Jesus Christ? And if it's anything other than that, you're wasting your time. He says, what I also received. He said, Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures. Isaiah in particular made very clear a very, made a very clear picture of the suffering Messiah. And there is nobody else on the landscape of history and time that fits into what Isaiah had to say other than Jesus Christ. So Jesus was crucified according to the Scriptures. It was God's plan, it was God's will that Jesus died. Yes, the Romans were involved. Yes, the Jews were involved. Yes, the disciples ran for their life. But it was God's will ultimately it, that he died according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. Did you know that burial of Jesus Christ is also part of the gospel? We don't talk about it much, but you know what the burial means? It means that he died. There's other implications, but ultimately that Jesus would have never been put in the tomb if he was alive. And the reason that's important is there was all kinds of rumors surrounding Jesus when his body disappeared. And one of the rumors that's been going all down through time is that that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, that when he was hanging on the cross, he passed out. They thought he was dead. They took him off the cross. They put him in that cool, damp tomb, and he kind of came to himself. If you don't understand the foolishness of that, let let me explain a little bit. The Romans were experts in a lot of things, but one of the things they were absolutely an expert in is killing people. They knew how to do it, and they were very efficient at it. They would have never allowed that body to come off that cross if Jesus was still alive. And in fact, if you remember, one of those Roman soldiers takes a spear, shoves it all the way up under Jesus' ribcage, through his lung and into his heart, and when they pulls that spear out, blood and water came out. Just to make sure, how could he have gotten out? you got all kinds of problems with that theory. He was buried, means he was dead. Not only was he dead, but he was wrapped in linens just like they would have done for anyone. Those linens would have been somewhere around around 150 to 160 pounds of linens and spices. His body would have been wrapped tight, even if he had come back alive. There's no way he could have got out of it. So can we just all agree that the idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross is without any kind of evidence and without any kind of truth? That's wishful thinking at best. And the only reason you would take that position is if you're trying to, if you're trying to get around putting your faith in it. He says he was died he died according to the scriptures he was buried and he resurrected according to the scriptures he appeared to Cephas or Peter then to the 12 then he appeared to more than 5 Hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at the time of the writing that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. There were people walking around, maybe with canes. I don't know how old they were, but they're walking around with canes going, I was there on that day. I touched him. I felt him. I had a meal with him. I watched him ascend into the heavens. Jesus was not a ghost. He was bodily resurrection. I don't have any explanation for that. I know it completely goes past any kind of scientific reasoning we've got, but that's the God we serve. He does not operate in the laws of humanity and the laws of this planet. He completely goes transcends it. And if he wants Jesus to walk out of a tomb alive, that's an easy thing for our Father. Not even a problem. Not a problem at all. So, he says 500 saw him. James saw him. And Paul says one of untimely birth. Paul says, man, I can just imagine that Paul's saying, man, I wish I could have been born a little bit earlier so I could have been part of this. Paul's born a little later. He's trained in Judaism, and he hates Christianity. But when he saw Jesus on the Damascus Road, it changed everything. Paul, who was a murderer, became a church planner. Paul, who was filled with hate, became a guy who was... Deeply, deeply in love with Jesus Christ, so much so that he was willing to suffer himself. you know there was a rumor that started right after Jesus resurrected I mean it was immediately after it said Matthew chapter 28 verses 13 through about 15. Uh, the Pharisees were so upset about the fact of this pesky resurrection, right the resurrection is kind of pesky you can't get around it. And the evidence for it is overwhelming. So the Pharisees, once they hear that the body of Jesus is missing, they've got to come up with a plan. Now, there is no way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are going to come around the idea that Jesus resurrected, even though he said it publicly on at least three occasions. No, they're never going to come to that conclusion. So, so the Pharisees come up with a great idea. They say, well, look, we're going to give you some money, and here's what we need to do. You need to go out there and start a rumor. And the rumor is this. The disciples stole the body out of the tomb and have hidden it somewhere else and have perpetuated the idea that Jesus resurrected bodily. Did you know that same lie is perpetuated today? That thing still keeps coming up. You'll share the gospel with somebody. Somebody will bring that up. You, how are you going to answer that? Isn't it interesting that those disciples... And Paul, that we have the record of their life. And what's amazing to me is, let's, let's get to the, let's, let's kind of entertain the idea that for a moment, Jesus set the disciples down in kind of like a secret area and says, okay, guys, look, I've been telling everybody that I'm going to die, but, and I'm going to resurrect. And that's not really possible. You and I know that. Okay? So here's what's going to happen. When I die, I want you to take my body. I've got this tomb over here I want you to hide me in, and then go tell the world that I resurrected bodily. Okay, so the New Testament church begins. Jesus has been gone. Uh, they, they come up with this whole farce of 500 people. They, they convince 500 people to believe this same lie. They tell those 500 exactly what they're supposed to start, a church, by which by the time we get to Acts 4 and 5, Peter and John are being threatened with their life. And they're saying to Peter and John, hey, John, Hey, Peter, if you don't stop talking about this, we're going to kill you. We're going to beat you up. We're going to make your life miserable. You know what Peter says? I can't help but talk. Now, listen, would a group of people, 500 plus, would that group of people perpetuate a lie even when their lives are being threatened? No, I can tell you what I would do in that moment if my life's being threatened. Okay, hold on. Hold on. Let me, let me tell you where we can just end this Jesus' body is right over here if you want to go find it you know what the Pharisees would have done right they would have dragged the body out into the street they would have paraded it for everyone to see here's the body of Christ they're telling you a lie that never happened and it still hasn't to this day it didn't happen with the discovery channel it didn't happen with the history channel and it's not going to happen because my Lord lives bodily but you've got a choice to make don't you see you just can't walk by this right That's what's so pesky about the resurrection. Because if this literally happened, and it did, it demands something of you, does it not? Some people would say, well, I could never consider becoming a Christian because, you know, Christianity offends me. Well, here's a newsflash for you. Christianity offends me too, every day. Every time I read this book, it offends me. Because it's dealing with my heart issues, and i got plenty of them. And the Bible goes straight to the core issue here. So the, the ones who offer to you in this moment right here an excuse, can, can I offer to you that by the time you talk about a broken world, and I believe this is one of the best points to start talking with someone about the gospel, because we all know brokenness. We all know it. No matter who you walk into or walk, walk beside of in Robinson County, they've got something devastating going on in their life. So this is a great place to start talking about it and talking about that this was never God's design. But but here's the thing. When you start talking about this, and this person starts saying, Well, I've tried to escape it, and then you say these words, well, listen, I've told you about Jesus, I've told you about the change he's made in my life. You know, all that is really left is for you to repent. You explain what that is. Turn from your old life, turn your face towards Jesus, be willing to let him change your life because you can't do it. And you believe, what are we believing in? Well, we're believing that Jesus died on that cross. That he died. But if if that's as far as we go, then we just agree with a lot of historians that say, yes, Jesus was a man and he died on a cross. We've got to go to the next step. That that Jesus who died was placed in a tomb and that tomb was then broken open by a resurrected Lord. Bodily resurrected. And that's the greatest event in human history. Nothing even comes close. And nobody's pulled that off. And here it comes. What's preventing you From putting your faith in Jesus and turning from the life you're in. Now, I want to offer you a piece of advice right here. When you get to that point and you extend that opportunity for them right there in that restaurant or in Walmart or at the gas station or at the coffee shop or you're having a drink of coffee, at that moment when you've presented the gospel and you've been talking about how it changed your life and we get to this point, we say, what's keeping you from doing this? Can we all just, can I just tell you this, and this, I don't mean this to be abrupt, but can you just stop talking at that point? Stop talking. Would you extend an invitation for them to respond? This is a hard thing for me because this is what I get paid to do. Talk. But i got to shut up because they're looking, this person is looking for every opportunity to not deal with the issue. And the issue is, is there's a resurrected Lord that's going to hold them accountable and that heaven is real, hell is real, everything that Jesus had to say is real, and now it's time for you to choose. So there's implications to how you choose and what you choose. So you extend that invitation, then you stop talking. I don't care if it takes three minutes of silence. Let that silence hang right there. Don't say a word. And here's what you'll hear. Well, so-and-so down the road, he says he's a Christian, or that pastor up the road, he did this, or science says this, or evolution says this. Can Can I offer you, don't take that bait. You know what's happening in that moment? The Holy Spirit's working. The Holy Spirit's working maybe for the first time in their life. They're seeing that the world is in fact broken and there's a reason for it. And that there in fact was a Jesus Christ who came. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit is dealing. And you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to wiggle around with every excuse to get away from the reality that there is a heaven and a hell. You know what you do when they bring up all those excuses? Say, listen, yeah, I know that. Listen, Christianity has been misrepresented by a lot of pastors and a lot of Christians. Yep. Uh, Are there hypocrites through the church? Yep, I'm one of them. Do I live perfectly, exactly what the Bible says? Well, no, I fall short. But that's not the point, friend. The point is, is that Jesus resurrected, and what are you going to do with that? I'm going to force them to reject it outright. No, I'm not going to accept Christ. Okay, I'm not going to push you. That's, that's fine. But you've got to understand, there's implications to that choice. Lost friend, there's implications to the choice you're getting ready to make here in about two minutes, maybe less. Because I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond with the reality that Jesus, in fact, has resurrected. What happened 2,000 years ago has radically changed our landscape, radically changed the world. As a result of that, there's been all kinds of false religions that have come into the world simply because of the gospel of Jesus Christ as an affront to it. There has been attack after attack after attack. And yet, the church is still here. Jesus said, I will build my church upon the gospel of Jesus Christ And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father in heaven, it's right now in this moment that we begin to believe the truth or a lie. The truth has been presented. The results are between you and the person. And Father, I believe there's two groups of people in this room. There are those who have not accepted Christ and are still offering excuses. And there are those, just like the church at Corinth, who who have accepted Christ, but they're not living as though a tomb is empty. They're living in division. They're living in hatred. They're living just like the world. So, Father, for those two groups this morning, the resurrection bears upon their life. For the lost person, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ completely demolishes every argument that they can possibly offer of why not to follow him. Father, I know the Holy Spirit's gotta be involved in drawing, but Father, there is no viable argument against your grace and against your mercy that was on display for the whole world to see in the death of your son in his resurrection. So Father, silence the lies, the excuses. And Father, if they reject the gospel here this morning, that's their choice. You gave them free will to choose. To help them to see the implications of their choice. That they're not guaranteed to another day of life. Even the day, they, they have no guarantee of the day. And when death comes, there are no second chances. For the disciples in this room, Father, it may be that, it could be that just like the church at Corinth, they spent all these years naming your name but have never grown in their understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. And maybe like the church of Corinth, they've never gotten to the deep things. Or maybe, Father, they're just living as though that tomb somewhere still has your bones in it. And fear and worries gripped, gripped their life so much so that their head is down. And you never know that they're following a risen Lord. There's some things in that heart that needs to be dealt with. And we ask that you deal with them this morning. Have your will in your way during this time of commitment. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand to our feet and let's sing together. If you have a need, I'll be glad to pray with you. next chorus there's no better time to celebrate the praise of the King to celebrate that he is alive that the grave is in. We just heard it. sing it right. the
1: grave could not ignore it and all of heaven's roaring hell where is your victory death where is your sting the world could not ignore now the saints are roaring, Here, where is your king?
0: Last week we had over 240 names come in through our small groups of people who are far from Jesus. 240 plus. The reason I say 240 plus is because some of them say a whole family. They list all their names, which is fine. On these two stands over here, every one of the names that were turned in small group last week are on these two stands. And we're going to take time right now. We're going to pray. We're going to pray for those names. I'm going to walk over to one of them. I'm going to call some names out. I want you to grab hands with somebody close to you. you. don't know them, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. If your hands are sweaty, don't worry about that either. <laughs> grab a hand somebody close by you. We're going to pray right now. Father in heaven, we feel the weight. This represents lives that will spend eternity in one of two places and father we and myself included are way too casual about that I'm thankful for every person to put a name forward last week and even more that came in today but father this is a work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these people but father they need somebody to come alongside them and tell them about the hope that is available in Christ because how, how can they how can they put their faith in a Jesus they don't know? Father, how can how can their lives be changed when they don't even know that life change is possible? So Father, right now as we hold the hand of the person next to us, we feel the weight of all these names. So Father, right here, I've got one that says Tim, my brother, Michael, Margie a neighbor, my cousin, Thomas and Stephen, Paul and Fred, and Barbara, and Joy and Nathan, Katina, and Jordan, and Bryce, and William and Matthew, Shannon and Tiffany, Travis, Michael, and Casey, and Jeff. Father, you know every one of these names, and every one that was submitting. You know, you know their situation. You know they, where they are right now. Some of those names I recognize. Some of those names, Father, I know who they are, and I know, Father, that they've not made a commitment. Some of those names are here in this service on a regular basis. And they will spend eternity in one of two places. So, Father, we beg. And we know, Father, we're praying in your will. But we beg, Father, that you would do a work in these hearts. Break away the coldness, the hardness, and the excuses, and the reasons to not believe. When all, and then all that's left is an empty tomb and a choice to make. Take everything away but that. Father, send people into the lives of these people and that there would be boldness and freedom and joy and hope shared. Because, Father, this is more than just praying for these names. This is about going. This is about being active. If they're far from Jesus but close to the person, there's only one thing left, and that's to bring Jesus up and bring the gospel up. May we be found faithful in doing exactly that even today. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.